So, Steve, I will start with you. Why are writers and readers attracted to true crime? Yeah, well, they definitely are, aren't they? Uh, yeah, we're, we're uh, I think, part of the reason. Um, I think we're fascinated by extreme circumstances, and I think we, uh, to some degree, picture ourselves in them and how far we would go uh, in that situation. Um, I think it's almost also a kind of a... Um, a community kind of issue. Uh, we care about the people around us. We care about the country that we live in. And we are appalled uh, when violence is inflicted on the innocent. And I think we feel that very deeply. Um, then there are other sort of baser reasons. Uh, look, you know, uh, people uh, do have quite deep set voyeuristic uh, tendencies. Uh, as a journalist, I have a license to be a voyeur and get paid for it and, and am able to hide behind that. How much detail, detail does the public need? Does, does the media over-sensationalise um, crime? Um, no. Uh, you know what? Uh, I, I think the thing that I'm mainly concerned about these days of the media vis-a-vis uh, -vis crime is that they're under-reporting crime. Uh, there's much less of us these days. Uh, many of us have had our positions disestablished and we're now working for the Christchurch City Council or other monstrosities. <laughs> and so uh, many really important, socially important uh, and emotionally um, compelling trials are simply not being reported on because there aren't any journalists. And I find that a real worry uh, because how often are we getting a case like Tainapura, which almost randomly uh, has become uh, so well known and so important thanks to this chap and many others who he was working with, but um, it happens in the first place because it gets reported on. How many other people are being railroaded, put away through bung evidence and so forth that we're not hearing about? So that's the thing I'm concerned about. Um, uh, an under-reporting of crime in the media is a bit of a novelty to me, but what, 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 what role did, um, does the, did the media play in the Tenapora case? Um, an, an absolutely critical role um, in, a, in a couple of different ways. First of all, um, at, a, at a practical level, um, the, the reporting of, of Tainer's case was vital in us uncovering some evidence. And I don't think it's been particularly widely reported, um, but <clears throat> it was on the back of, um, of a documentary on Māori television that we identified the possibility that Tainer had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And had we not done that documentary, had we not invested the time in, in all that went into that documentary, and it was many hundreds of hours um, in telling, trying to tell Tainer's story and trying to convey to the public some of the things that had happened to him, um, then we may never have had that evidence around his fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And that's a, you know, that's a troubling thought, that if, if we hadn't done a documentary, he might still be in prison. When did you choose to interact with the media? When did you choose to get them on board? And did you ever hold things back at certain stages? You know, how did you try and control that process? Well, I mean, we had a very small legal team. 
and there was, there was a, a, a tension between what the lawyers wanted to do and what was proper to do in, in, traditional, in a traditional legal sense and what I wanted to do. Um, Tainer's case was unique enough and unusual enough that I thought there would be public interest around it, and so we had an ongoing debate about what we would do. Um, we deliberately engaged with media about two years into, into the process. Uh, one, one part of that was a documentary, the other was a, a more deliberate uh, interaction with Phil Taylor from The Herald, uh, Paula Penfold and Eugene Bingham from then TV3, now Fairfax. And for me, that was about starting to tell Tainer's story, starting to generate interest in it, um, and, and helping us gather evidence, and also put a little bit of pressure on the authorities, because without that, I think we would have really struggled. Well, you mentioned um, Phil Taylor, Paul Penfold, and Eugene Bingham, and they were absolutely vital to, um, to, to the case coming to light and to, to getting the, uh, the outcome that you did. But Steve, this idea of advocacy journalism, you know, this idea that you throw away objectivity quite intentionally, and go after, you know, chase one side. Um, is there, are, there, are there problems with that, or is it a good thing? Uh, I really support it. Uh, without it, we wouldn't have had Arthur Thomas being freed, thanks to David Yellup. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of advocacy journalism in, uh, in crime. It's not something that I practice personally. Uh, and the closest I would have come to it, I suppose, was with the uh, Mark Lundy well, I was going to mention that you did you did fall on a side there. I didn't really. I um, it was interesting, you know. Um, <laughs> years ago, I got an email out of the blue from a chap I'd never heard of, a guy called Jeff Levick, and he began sort of sweet talking me and saying, oh, "I really like your book about birds, and I've got these. Uh, I think he had uh, kookaburras. That's right, on his property, and you know, isn't that interesting? And oh, by the way." I devoutly believe that Mark Lundy is innocent and would you come over to my house and we could have a talk about it? And I thought, what a nutter. <laughs> if anyone is guilty in this country of anything, it's Mark Lundy. And wrote back a patronising but polite uh, refusal to come over. Um, other, journalists, other journalists replied, well, one other journalist replied to him eventually did reply to him positively. And that was Mike White from North and South. And just like Paula Penfold and Phil Taylor, this guy was utterly crucial and pivotal in um, making this so public and such a contentious issue that it wouldn't go away that it eventually did lead to Lundy, you know, being released. That's what I went back to. Jeff Levick, and I said, oh, hey, what about those kookaburras? Uh, <laughs> be cool to come over. Um, because by that time, Lundy was basically living with him and, um, and they were awaiting the retrial. And so I was fascinated to go over there for, uh, to his place during the summer, just before the trial. Um, and I was wary of what that would be like, you know. I just spent days and days and days there looking at files and having ice creams with them and beers with them and just chatting. And um, advocacy journalism, it didn't go very far, really, because Lundy is not very likable as a human being. He's just not a good guy. He's kind of off, you know. However, I don't think that is particularly pertinent uh, when it comes to his guilt. I did really like this guy, Jeff Levick. 
uh, a lot. And I do wonder to this day whether the irony of it is that Jeff spent something like nine years of his life intensely um, trying to free a guilty man. Um, I, I just don't know what happened with Lundy, whether he did do this incredibly violent crime or not. Um, Mike White uh, will tell you that uh, he didn't take sides either, but he certainly fought very hard uh, for this case to go to retrial. Um, he is in the news at the moment because he's wanting to interview Scott Watson in prison with Gerald Hope, the father of Olivia. And um, he wrote a book a couple of years ago on, uh, was it Ewan McDonald, is that his name? The, the, the fielding, yeah, yeah, yeah. the fielding yeah, guy. Uh, and uh, Mike uh, is a journalist who's second to none in my book. But I do wonder sometimes where there is sort of epitaph as um, Mike White freeing the guilty. Well, one person who certainly wasn't freeing the guilty, and you mentioned her, was um, Donna Chisholm, who rather famously wrote that she would write an article about David Doherty every week until he was freed from prison. You know, and this was a this was a case cleared of DNA. You know, there's no there's no doubt about it. But do we run the risk when we start to get into this advocacy type role as journalists get into advocacy type role of trial by media? Are there concerns around that? Yeah, I think that's a that's a legitimate risk. And I mean, everyone's an expert on certain things, aren't you know? Everyone thinks they're an expert, and um, it's not all of the evidence put before the court. And everybody has an opinion, and I and I have to say that I've sat through many many trials, and I've read the newspapers the morning following a day's evidence, and it really doesn't genuinely reflect what has happened in court. Um, and so there there are real risks around around how a case is portrayed by um, by some media. Um, when, and, and, and that's not necessarily an accurate reflection of what the evidence is or where the emphasis should be. And sometimes it can be quite subtle. And I, so I think there's, there is a risk around that. In terms of the trial by media, I think, um, I think that those types of risks are overstated. Um, a a well-directed jury um, can, um, I think it, the evidence is shown and the research shows a well-directed jury is able to put to one side um, um, what they've seen and heard in the media. Well, actually, you know what? I, I want to speak about juries and just, just after this one question we get. So all of this information is in the media and people make um, decisions based on it. How is it that the facts of the David Bain case, for example, the Bain case, um, don't change, and yet people can have polarised views, very, very different views one way or another, based on the same evidence? Uh, well, the, the judge in the first trial basically directed us in that way, didn't he? Uh, his famous opening sentence when he passed judgment was David or Robin? And that's a question which is it, it's, it's the, the only question, yeah. really. And, you know, that, that question sets up a division, doesn't it? And it's a really good question. Um, you know what, though? I mean, we're sort of talking in kind of abstract terms in a, in, a, in a sense here. And I just wanted to sort of ask you, Tim, because uh, Tim was a, um, appeared as, uh, what would it be, an expert witness, is that the phrase? Well, certainly a defence witness. Defence witness in the, in the trial of Mark Lundy. And if I'm summarising it accurately, uh, Tim was there to talk about um, the, 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 one of the big questions with Lundy, if not Lundy, who did? 
Would that be fair? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that was that was uh, a very much an issue for for any defence team. Is if if it is not your client, then who? And if you can't provide a viable alternative to a jury, uh, it can be it can be difficult. Well, and you you had your say in trial and, and so forth. And it, but it's in a very sort of set parameters, you know, in a trial. Just sort of tell us, talking as a human being, without anyone acting as a QC here. Was there compelling evidence there that would suggest someone else may have been culpable? You know the answer to that question. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think there was evidence pointing in other directions that wasn't properly dealt with. Yeah. Um, and, in, and in terms of Mr Lundy, I mean, I, I have a slightly skewed view because I was working with the defence team. But in practical terms, my view was and remains that he cannot have done what the, crowd, uh, what the Crown argued he did. And on that basis alone, it's my... This is, the, this is the travel in the car. No, 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 no. Well, it's a, it's a variety of things, but that in particular. Um, the, 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 that, that trip couldn't have occurred. My, my view is that um, on the evidence I've seen and is that that trip could not have occurred. Well, the police couldn't replicate it, could they? They could, not even close. Well, speaking of things off the record, Steve, and you're reporting, um, and just between friends, have you ever had to, when, when you've been reporting on things, have you ever had to pull things because of legal? And if you have, specifically, what are they? <laughs> five minutes ago. Uh, five minutes ago, I had the lawyers from the New Zealand Herald uh, screeching at me, not very manfully, uh, to uh, amend the um, secret diary which appears on Saturday. Uh, they didn't think that it was legally safe to assert that the Wallabies coach, Michael Checker, is that his yeah. name? Uh, was bugging the All Blacks hotel room <laughs> while dressed in a maid's outfit. <laughs> So that's uh, been changed. Uh, as for... Uh, uh, you can't say that publicly. <laughs> yes. But as for, as for uh, serious crime reporting, um, there would have been mild, minor changes, nothing that I've ever um, took umbrage to or anything. And indeed, you know, I, I thought the Herald's behaviour um, when I was writing about the Lundy trial constantly and at length was um, incredibly supportive and very, very liberal... Uh, in particular, um, there was one witness who the prosecution called, and I'm suspecting that they called him very reluctantly, uh, and they were pressured to do so by police, but that's just my suspicion. And this witness was a jailhouse snitch who um, appeared uh, anonymously and so forth, and you couldn't write his name, obviously, but well, actually, anything can, Actually, Steve, can I stop you there? Because this is actually a passage in the book that I wanted to read. Oh, really? Um, and what it a coincidence. Will, uh, if, if, if we're going to talk about snitches, um, because you do, in the introduction, I've just had to go and buy this book because as the chair, obviously, I came along and forgot it. So um, I just thought I'd buy one to um, help Steve's coffers. Um, but in the introduction to the book, you say that murder trials can often be quite boring. Um, because, you know, they're a bit stayed, there's scientific evidence, you know, it has to go through point by point by point. Yeah. But the way you write about them is not boring. Um, and I'll give this as some evidence. But Morgan announced that he had something new. He paused. 
The media looked up, their paws poised above their laptops. An old man in the public gallery gently dozed. The eyes of the insane judge in the portrait gallery seemed to widen and bulge. Morgan folded his arms, then he thrust his hands in his pockets where they could hide from view. He looked down, he said Lundy had confessed to the murders to an inmate. He will tell you of their conversations, he said. A jailhouse snitch, incredible as in, not credible, a pathetic joke. <laughs> but there it was, a jailhouse snitch, one of the great stock characters from criminal justice in the flesh were things really that desperate. Which is an absolutely beautiful piece of writing. And if, if you can talk about the snitch, because I know, I know you want to, but can you just indulge me briefly? Does writing like that come naturally to you or do you have to craft it? I write real fast, real, real fast. Uh, I don't know if it's any good, but I know it's quick. <laughs> and that if you give me three days to write something patiently and at leisure, it's usually going to be incredibly boring, very pretentious, possibly quite well balanced, but unreadable. Uh, and so I, I, I operate better when, um, you know, there's a deadline or I impose one. And I'm sorry for the introduction, back to the snitch. Yeah, but yeah, the, the snitch, uh, I mean, the point that I wanted to say about that was that um, you have to be very careful when writing about uh, secret witnesses. Witness X was what we had to call him. You have to be very, very careful. And you could see basically the journalists who were writing about it around me at that trial uh, all sort of widening their eyes and writing much less than they usually were because it's so fraught. Uh, I felt no such compunction and indeed treated the jailhouse snitch with the contempt that he surely deserved. Uh, he was a, 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 he would have been a comical character if the stakes weren't so high. Um, a ridiculous person uh, because of his build and his face, uh, a memorable character, you could say, who, um, and, and the amazing thing about him, and he's surely got some sort of special charisma, that um, he met Lundy for around about, we could estimate, 13 minutes once, and in that time, Lundy told him, not anyone else ever, what he did to his wife and child. Told him quite casually, fairly matter of fact. And the jailhouse snitch um, had no idea that this was Mark Lundy, even though it was one of the most famous trials we ever held and so forth, and, and held on to this information for years and years until it seemed to sort of coincide uh, with the fact that if he uses information, he would get a lesser sentence for one of his many crimes. Uh, he was a petty criminal, a liar, uh, a wife beater, basically a piece of shit, I think is the legal term. And, and he was hauled out as a really important uh, witness uh, in that trial. And that's, you know, without being an advocate or anything like that, because I certainly don't, you know, run around believing that Lundy is innocent, I simply don't know. But when you're stooping to that level, uh, you've got to have your suspicions and, you know, thank God that uh, witnesses like that, jailhouse snitches, I mean, Tim, they're quite rare, aren't they? 
Yeah. Was, um, was one in your, was one in the Tapora case? The, the, there was one in, in the Porter case. Can you tell me about that? Uh, and, and he was vital. I, I'd start by um, saying that Steve's description of the snitch in the Lundy case is perhaps slightly too generous to him. Um, <laughs> um, I, was, I was involved in, in investigating some of his background and looking at some of that, and um, for, for legal reasons I can't go into detail, but I think Steve's been very generous to him. Um, it, it's also worth noting I was part of the defence team and I wasn't allowed to see him give evidence. Um, so the restrictions and protections that are provided to some of these snitches are quite extraordinary and, and there is a, a very clear imbalance in my view. And you weren't allowed to watch him in court? I was not allowed to watch him in court. Oh, you missed out. So I'm, I'm relying wholeheartedly on your description of him. Well, um, obviously these things were put before juries and much of the information that is put out to the public which we all make our minds on. Um, and people can have these widely, you know, differing opinions, as we spoke about with Bain. Um, obviously, you've got a differing opinion to, on the, to, to, to the jury that um, convicted Lundy um, twice. Uh, do we have faith in the jury system? You guys have both spent a lot of time in the courts watching, um, what, you know, watching how they operate. Do we have faith in the jury system? Um, I do. I think it's more democratic than any alternative. Um, and and I, I, you know, <laughs> depends if I'd done it or not. I, you know, um, but you 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 are you have the availability of a more just and reasonable and humane verdict from a jury than what you do from a judge, and that appeals to me at a at a, at a basic level. You agree, Steve? Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, even though I've reported on or sat in on a number of trials where. Um, I felt the jury's verdict was, um, well, in one particular case anyway, um, led by spite and ignorance and hysteria rather than carefully assessing the evidence. Yeah. Sorry, you, you're telling us about secret witness, your, your jailhouse snitch. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, there was a very prominent one. There were, there were several in the, in the Porter case in particular, hmm. um, and and he he fronted time and again, and every time the police police were a little bit short of evidence, lo and behold, out of the blue, he would front up with this critical piece of evidence, and and so his evidence is is fascinating reading because every time there's a hole in the case, he turns up. Um, I went back um, as part of my work on that case and and looked at him and how he developed as a, as a witness, and um, apart from the suspicious timings of him fronting up out of the blue, um, we were able to establish that he was paid money, uh, he was given letters to help him with sentencing. Uh, at one stage, one of the police officers involved uh, gave, lent him his own personal money. Um, and uh, those are only the things that were recorded, properly recorded. Um, his evidence, if you look at it in detail, is completely, complete rubbish. Uh, at best, uh, yet he was he was presented by the Crown as a credible witness. I don't believe any intelligent police officer or prosecutor could have presented that evidence uh, with any confidence, yet, uh, yet he presented at two trials and uh, and was allowed by, by two High Court judges to give evidence um, that I suspect was quite compelling and influential in the jury's verdicts. Well, the wider picture you, you present to us here, though, Tim, is that uh, is one of chaos. And uh, that's not the way things work, though, is it? I mean, you, you, you know, you're talking about your work uh, on defence trials uh, for defence, but of course you're an ex-detective, aren't you? As Jared asked you about your faith in juries, what's your faith like in the police? Um, I, it, it's variable, um, 
And what I've learned to do is, uh, is, is make judgments um, rational and informed judgments based on individuals that I deal with. I think you cannot have a, a global view of our police. I think for the most part they are very good. Um, they deal with high volumes, high stress situations. They do generally a very good job. Um, but there is a certain myopia. Uh, I know Jared calls it blue vision. And there is, a, there, is, um, there, is a, a, there is a very real police culture, not just here, but globally, that, um, that I think is, is, has to be watched very, very closely. Most of the men and the women in the New Zealand police are good people wanting to do good work. There is no doubt about that, but they lose their way more often than they should. How did, how did that relationship change, Tim, over time as you started to... You went from the police being an ally, you know, of course, one of, you know, part of the police force, um, and then started to investigate something that you were saying that the police had made a big error about and started to dig deeper into this. How did the relationship change over time? It's, it's, it's difficult for me to say, but I think that um, some people don't talk to me anymore. Um, other people look at me funny when I see them in the airport when I'm on the way to Christchurch to talk about different cases. Um, there's, uh, there's different, and, and so you have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis, um, but there is, a, there is a real defensiveness around people that criticise the police, and I was no different when I was there. Um, there's a real brotherhood and sisterhood within the police, and, and in some respects that's necessary and, and a good thing, but I think uh, there's a balance needs to be struck. Um, all of this is fairly sort of heavy, and I guess true crime is, is like that. But, Tim, can we just try and... Can you give me a fist-pump moment? Can you give me a fist-pump moment and during the Tenapora case when you're grafting and grafting away? There may have been several where you kind of went... Um, well, well, I probably can, but it's not a particularly happy moment. Um, <laughs> well, um, we, we had been asking for nearly three years for, for documents that would prove that certain witnesses were shown certain things by the police, and we were told time and again that they didn't exist. And um, eventually, when Crown became involved, Crown Law became involved, we were given access to the files for the very first time. And, um, and I was able to go in and spend a few days at the police station looking at unredacted files, looking at them in raw form, I could see everything. And, um, and you wouldn't believe it, I found um, not just one, but three or four documents, statements from people um, that showed exactly what we were looking for and we'd been told didn't exist. So that was a, that was a fist pump moment, but it's bittersweet, of course, because um, we'd been essentially either lied to or deliberately misled for three years on a really important piece of evidence. And so... Um, what does that do to your faith in the police? It speaks for itself, and again, it's not the police; it's the individuals we were dealing with who I blame for those those sorts of things. And um... well, there's nefarious on, uh, nefariousness on one side, say, um, Steve. If uh, you know, you think about the uh, journalist in the murder, that fantastic book by Malcolm. Or what was her name? Jan Janet Malcolm. If you, I'm not sure if you've read it, but it's a, it's a book that looks at um, uh, how a journalist befriended a, a person who was. Um, convicted of murder, um, was proclaiming their innocence, he befriended them and then absolutely betrayed them to get the story. Mm. Is there any reason when that can be useful or should be done? You know, is there an ought in there? You know, ought we be able to do that as a journalist? Uh, well, you know, uh, betrayal is, is, you know, uh, it's in the journalist toolkit. You've got your notebook, your tape recorder, and you've got your sense of betrayal. Uh, no, no. Um, it does happen. Uh, certainly, uh, 
you know, well, that, perception, that, you know? That, that was something I became, you know, very quickly aware of and wary of with this Lundy business is that, you know, uh, was I being too jovial while we were having uh, a gelato ice cream? <laughs> and did I, in fact, harbour grave suspicions about him? Um, you know, I mean, there was that really crucial uh, moment uh, in this particular story with Lundy, which I never resolved, and that was um, I had, I was spending very long days looking at Jeff Leffick's files on the Lundy case. And he had them all in manila folders in a very hot little room off the garage. And I was going through a few particular files and I'd finished with them and I was looking around the room at the other files and one of them was Mark Sutherland. And I thought, oh yes, that's the chap uh, in charge of the DSIR investigation. I know who he is. I'd better have a look. And I was standing up and I was sort of flipping through and then I came to um, a series of black and white uh, photocopies of the crime scene and that was the first time that I had seen the pictures of what had happened uh, to Christine and Amber. And um, it was a really awful thing to see. There were a lot of photographs. Um, they were badly blurred and, you know, they weren't colour photocopies, which kind of made it worse. Instead of seeing red blood, you saw black stains. And it was terribly affecting. Um, and the room seemed to go very, very quiet. And when I finally sort of put the folder back, and I, you know, not quite staggered, but walked rather gingerly outside into the summer's day, and there was Lundy great big oaf on top of a ladder looking at a septic tank or something like that. And I just sort of looked at him and I thought, did, did, you, did you do that? Because it was absolutely pitiless. Um, and I think after then it was impossible for me to uh, betray him because of my doubts that he might have done it. You know, it was so, so awful uh, to see. Well, I think Amber Lundy was seven years of age. Your daughter, I think, is nine. Um, yeah, she was seven at the time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, there was, a, there was another curious thing. I think the first time I met Lundy and I, I said to him, uh, I said, oh, look, I, you know, probably know, need to know a couple of things about me. Uh, one is that, like you, uh, I am a father of one child and she's seven. And he, uh, he um, it was like, you know, he'd been shocked with a taser and, and took a step back. And uh, he said to me as I was leaving, uh, hey, look, Steve, when you go home, could you give her a hug from me? How do you protect yourself against these things? I was actually going to ask if, it, if these types of things upset you, and clearly they, they, no, they do, but do, no. do you have to protect yourself against this type of thing? Do you have to stay one step removed? Not for me. It might be, it may well be different for Tim. 
for the exact same reason that, that it, it doesn't uh, affect me in the slightest. Um, constantly sort of aware that... Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't affect you. You, you, just, you sounded affected by that. Like you, you know, you, it was you, moving, for sure. But then I go home, and that's it. I go home. I don't stay in that situation where I am being accused of a, you know, really a pathological double murder. I am not in that situation where I'm there to support him like his sister continually constantly does to this day. Uh, strange thing, by the way, his brother uh, is convinced that his own brother is guilty and changed his surname a long time ago to distance himself from that. But I go home um, and I get on with the rest of my life and it would be a, you know, an appalling kind of arrogance or, or egocentricity or something to feel some pain myself and these other people absolutely living it. And, and Tim, you know, I mean, you're spending, as a detective, certainly, when you're on the force, you must have, um, you're spending a lot more time than a journalist on cases. How did it affect you? Um, you, you, you very quickly become, you learn to compartmentalise and you put the, the forensic and, um, and gruesome side of it to one side. Well, at least you think you do, whether you do or not, I, I guess only time will tell. Um, but, um, I, and I, I, I think I'm quite good at that, but what, what affects me um, more than anything is dealing with live people and, and emotions and trying to manage that. And when you're interviewing witnesses and speaking to people that have seen terrible things, uh, have been involved in terrible things, and when you're interviewing a suspect, have sometimes done terrible things, that is, that is difficult. Um, that is far more difficult for me um, in terms of not taking it home than looking at a file. And that uh, is something I know that journalists do. Uh, it's not just police officers and private investigators. Um, doctors and nurses do it as well. And, you know, it's, it's part of the fabric of life. But for me, that is far more difficult to manage and handle uh, than something in a folder. I find that real interesting. Uh, while Tim was saying that, and uh, looking at him and uh, so sort of confirm something that I felt about you the very first time I met you, which was at the Lundy trial, and I thought, of, thought about it uh, of you, Tim, instantly when I met you. He's got a cop's face. <laughs> he does, he does. There's such a thing, I think, as a, as a journalist's face. It's, uh, it's usually quite shrewd and rat-like. <laughs> Strangely optimistic. A cop's face, uh, that's a different thing altogether. There is a, um, there is a kind of a hurt to a policeman's face and there's something also very concealed about a policeman's face. Uh, they don't let you know what's going on and it's because of the stuff that you will have seen and will have dealt with. You've got an academic's face, by the way. I was. <laughs> I was really afraid to ask, actually. <laughs>
move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, from, from my perspective, um, and I, I can't speak for others, but when you're dealing with these people and you're asking them to bear the most awful things to you, you, you have to give a little piece of yourself to, to get the best, to get the most. And if you don't do that, and if you're cold and you're calculating and you're forensic, uh, you won't get it, and so I think I think you need need to give that. But of course, that comes at a cost, and I don't think there's any any decent research into what that cost is. But you probably need to just perhaps start with divorce rates for cops um, to start to see the types of things, uh, you know, how how it manifests itself. But I think Gary, were you asking that how you can walk sort of past the case? Um, why you don't take them up, Steve? So, so you're not sitting there beating a drum now for Lundy, or you know, setting up a trust or anything. You have, you know, moved on from it. I assume, actually, I don't know. I guess that's a question. But do, do you know what I mean? Whereas, whereas I guess some people might pause and and, and, and stay there, and others, well, it's a job. I've done my reporting, and then I'll move on. I don't, which is important. You know, I mean, I'm not saying yeah, everyone can take up cases. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's this famous thing which um, Graham Greene said about writers is that they have to have a, a, a sliver of ice in the heart. I've probably got more than a sliver. Um, I always just kind of see it as um, when I'm reporting on things and I'm with people in intense situations, like a murder trial, and there's nothing more intense on this earth. They're so appalling. Uh, but while I'm with that, it's almost like a kind of a rehearsal for the real job and that is sitting down without anybody around me and writing about it, because writing about it is the final product. It's the thing which counts, and you've got to get it right, as in you've got to be accurate, but you've got to express what you're really feeling and really observing, and you've got to be really intent and astute about it, and, and that's, that's my main you know, concern, really. It is, it is quite cold, it is quite uh, dispassionate, you know, um, and then, you know, having done that, uh, you know, I'm a person who sort of, like, like pretty much all of us, really, I've got a, I'm interested in a great many things, and, and um, I do feel, I have to say, that having done that crime book, um, I haven't been into a, uh, this is no coincidence, I haven't been into a courtroom since. Uh, I'm just sort of interested in other things, it's not like I feel as though I'm jaded with crime, or I'm over it. Uh, it's an ongoing concern. But I don't think I could bring to bear the fascination that I had. Um, the only time I've been, I, I have been back to a kind of courtroom since then, but that was uh, uh, the uh, immigration or something courtroom for the um, uh, imbecilic and uh, vile Kim.com. Uh, and that was more of a comedy than anything, really. But yeah, I don't think I could do it again. I really don't. Um, not because it's taken it all out of me. I'm just sort of really interested in, in other things. And, and, and you know, there was almost like a moment when I realized that I, I, I was reporting on a, uh, a story a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, in my local suburb, which is Teatatu in West Auckland. A uh, convicted pedophile had been released and um, I decided to walk around to the house where he had 
committed these crimes and talk to neighbours, you know, saying, oh, he's being released, how do you feel about that? Uh, expecting he'd be released somewhere like, you know, Hokitika or Rolleston or something. And it turned out, they said, look, the cops have been around, he's coming back to the house. I said, Jesus, really? That's unusual. Um, so I ran around to the back of the house because uh, I wanted to have a look. And had a very high fence. And you could just sort of position yourself on the lower sort of rung of it and, and lift your, your neck over. And you could look around into the backyard. And guess what? There was nothing to fucking see. <laughs> there was a pot, a pot plant which had turned over and there was a, 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 a clothesline with a tea towel on it. And you know what? I couldn't have been happier. I thought this is what I was born to do, spy on people. But honestly, I'm 56 years old. Shouldn't I be doing something else? And um, yeah, uh, I... I just wanted to be interested in something else, I think. Well, thank you for bringing us the stories that you do, Steve. And I guess the one distinction we might make here is that in, in some part, Tim, you became part of the story of Tenapora, that you started to investigate this case. Um, and then once it had um, come, keep, reached a just conclusion, if you now look back on it, you're a really big part of that story. How is that to become then suddenly a focus of it? You know, from a case that we're you know, just working on, just jobbing, um, suddenly you, you become it. Yeah, it was, it was never the plan um, and of, of some discomfort to my wife um, who really dislikes attention. So I've very much separated my personal life from the work on Tainer's case and, and even the work I'm doing now with, um, with illegal fishing. Um, and it's, it's an unusual position to find yourself in. Um, Steve doesn't know this, but I spent the first three weeks of the Lundy trial trying to avoid him. Uh, <laughs> um, we, uh, each morning we'd get up and see what Steve had to say about um, different characters in the trial and um, I, I, I perhaps didn't focus on my job as much as I should have. I spent a great deal of time seeing when Steve was and wasn't in court and finding a place to sit that might be safe <laughs> um, because I, I saw how some people were written about. Um, so, um, yeah, it's not, not, not a position I'm comfortable with um, you because if you work on, you become, you know, people either love you or hate you and there's sort of not a great deal of middle ground when you work on some of these cases and I've worked on a few sort of relatively high profile cases and, and, and people aren't afraid after a few drinks to come and tell you that they love you or hate you. And oh, look, after a few drinks we'll tell you we love you Tim. Um, well look this might be an appropriate time at least to open up for questions. Um, if there are any, I'm, I'm, sure, there w I'm sure there will be. Now, um, we've got some runners, I think, um, with microphones. Um, there's a question just down here. I think the, the, the rest of the audience might appreciate it. Is there anything? Oh, sorry, it's just behind you now, mate. I'd like to make a comment and, and, and then a question. First of all, I see similarities um, with the Memphis Three case in America that I followed from a very early stage. And whilst it's not the same thing, there did seem to be similarities. The other one, I guess, Great Tim, you'd be, the, you'd be the, the best person to answer this question. The top cop, what's his name? Marshall, is it? Is it Marshall? Is, is for, he? Um, for the 
Porter case. Yeah. Um, Steve Rutherford yeah. um, and the commissioner when we started was was Peter Marshall. Peter Marshall. Pe Peter Marshall is the guy I'm talking about. I just remember when TV3 started to make it quite clear that they weren't going to let this thing go and they did some phenomenal journalism on it. Um, him being spoken to during the news bulletin and his reply um, when he was questioned about how he felt about what was happening was quite curt and it was he's had two trials, basically that's mm. all we've had, oh, had to say. Uh, all, this, all this time later, I don't know, I can't remember whether he's given an official apology or not, but I just wonder how the top cops feel about looking down the barrel at what was happening in policing. He's saying that um, procedures have come a lot better now and we have um, a better source, we've got the internet, we've got all this and that. But to me, it, it just as a, as a punter, I looked at that at, at the beginning of that, the stuff that went on down there with the police involved and there, there were basic premises that, that were broken left, right and centre. And do they feel defensive about that stuff or do they think, well, it was fine at the time and because it was the time, it was okay? Yeah, interesting question. Um, the, I don't know what it is about the police commissioners here, but they seem to have a rabbit and headlights routine that they trot out whenever they're challenged on these difficult cases. Um, and undoubtedly they were defensive. Up until around eight weeks ago, the police position was that um, Tainer was... Uh, involved in Susan Boudet's rape and murder. Quite remarkably, if I may just interject, for the first time that I can remember, perhaps in my lifetime, the police association came out with an opposing view. Usually the police association hold exactly the same line, and in this particular case, they came out and said, you know what, there might be some problems, which I think is remarkable. Yeah, um, and, you know, aside from the David Doherty case, which, which Donna Chisholm did, I don't know if there's ever in our criminal history been a more obvious example of a wrongful conviction. <laughs> All of the evidence always, in my view, pointed towards Tainer's innocence. Yet the police commissioners, up until eight weeks ago, really, um, maintained this ridiculous position. And, and they refused to, to review the case. They do not want to have a bar of it. Um, and, you know, I can't help but think that that, you know, that, that myopia is, is um, motivated perhaps by a, a need to please the politicians, not to accept you get it wrong. Um, there's this, this fear of getting it wrong. It's entirely human to get things wrong, and I, it really upsets me, and it's one reason I'm taking, <laughs> taking a break from criminal work, a little bit like Steve, because it's a, it's a frustrating place to work at times. Thanks very much. Appreciate that. Other questions? Just down on the... Yeah. Um, Steve, there was something recently in the Herald where there was... Um, you were reporting on something in the in the courts, and um, there was a straight reporter. You could read the straight report, and you could read yours. What was your, <laughs> what was your attitude to that, and what, why did the Herald do that? Um, oh, I really, uh, well, I, I, I um, really value, uh, your, your, to use your term, straight reporting of uh, criminal trials. I think it's really important. It's bloody difficult, by the way. It's real difficult. Your, the standards of accuracy have to be maintained higher in a trial than any other form of journalism. And you have to understand or at least give some semblance of understanding 
quite complex forensic things. It's really difficult. Of course, I wasn't doing any of that. Um, I wanted to write about it uh, as someone who likes to write, you know? I wanted to write about the people and the comedy of it, which uh, happened throughout that trial, and all trials are quite funny because when you get a group of people, no matter how appalling the situation, it can be real funny. Um, yeah, I just thought I, I wanted to, in a way, you know, writing straight court reports, it's kind of contrived in a way, and Tim talked about that phenomena of you can sit on a trial all day, pick up the paper the next day and read an account of it, and you go, I wasn't there, what's this? And um, the way I was writing about it, in my mind anyway, was um, realistic. To my way of thinking. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and also, um, you know, because writing about all sorts of subjects, doesn't matter what they are, in a kind of a realistic or lyrical or imaginative way, uh, I think it does take the reader closer to what's happening, you know? Um, I would really, by the way, uh, you know, Jared's been very sort of a discreet in this session today, but as the author of uh, Patched, uh, the book on gangs, which is a real eye-opener, and I've often thought since that book was published that uh, one thing that journalism is missing, among many things it's missing, wouldn't it be great if there was a journalist whose round was gangs? That's what they did all day, every day. They reported on gangs. I think it'd be a really important job, and. Uh, you know, reporting on it in the kind of way that I write about it, that, that would, you know, if someone else wanted to do that. Uh, <coughs> Steve, Steve, no one writes about things the way you write about them. <laughs> um, other, other questions? Just straight up the guts here. I just want to pick up on something that Steve said right at the beginning about how crime is underreported. And I want to throw this one back at Jared and say, Hey, Jared, do you think that crime is underreported? And I think also from my perspective, it's not just about how much it's reported, but also the way in which it's reported. And our thirst, you know, the interest of people here is in those gory details of those really high profile cases when obviously most of crime is not like that. But there's still a thirst for it to be portrayed in that way sometimes. Only six percent. Uh, to be believed, only 6% of the, uh, the country correctly um, identifies that violent crime has been decreasing since the 1990s. Only 6% know that to be true. Um, now, the reason that most people, the vast majority of people actually, either believe crime is increasing or has remained somewhat stable, um, in my view, would be because of um, media reporting, that we tend to remember um, violent events um, that, are, that are thrust before us and don't um, have a, uh, an appreciation for how rare, in fact, they are. Um, to be killed in this country um, is an incredibly rare phenomenon. Um, a, a woman to be killed, um, as, you know, as, as occurs, in fact, um, in Auckland recently, that runner in Remuera, um, you know, there, was a, there was a big march for her or whatever. You know, 
it's impossibly rare that that happens. You might get, statistically, I think you get about 1.2 a year. Um, so many, many more women are winning lotto um, every year than they are getting, well, no one's planning on spending the rest of their lives uh, changing their lifestyles to win lotto. But a lot of women are changing their lifestyles because of fear of violent crime. And so we have to keep this into perspective, and I might argue that, um, that we do um, perhaps uh, over-report it in poor ways and maybe under-report it in very good ways, like the Donald Chisholm's, like the Mike Wines. Mm. I, I mean, it's true that you know, violent crime murders, anyway, are really rare. But when violent they, crime across the board. But, you know, when, that, when they do happen and there's an arrest made and there's an attendant trial, um, the whole case, including the trial, I think, and you know, this goes to my fascination and why I wrote about it for so many years, is that I think it's a subject which tells you more about uh, New Zealand and the way it's actually lived than just about anything else. And to that end, you know, what I was saying before, if someone was writing constantly, just news stories all the time about gang activity, and sometimes it would be pretty boring. It wouldn't always be spectacular or nefarious. Mm. Uh, you would get an uh, incredibly good um, insight, I think, into New Zealand life, much more than you do, say, from political reporting, which is a, a minority pursuit practiced by fanatics. Uh, than you do with crime reporting. There was a, a small story in the press the other day about the uh, chap who tried to rob a dairy uh, with a goddamn taser. Where the hell did he get a taser from? What's that about? But if you followed that one in any particular detail, it would tell you so much about that particular person and where he came from and his community and the community that um, we live in. I think that's why these stories are important and I want them to be, I want there to be more information about it, not less, even if it's um, occasionally pretty sensational. <laughs> and we've probably got time for one very, hopefully it's quick, because I think we're, um, we're actually uh, very, very close to done for time. I'm sorry. It may not be quick, but I'm wondering that comment about um, police be, feeling pressured by politicians, if you could talk about whether you think that's something that's increasing, um, and whether that's just about high-profile things or whether police are also getting some pressure on what they're actually chasing after. Um, well, I think it's probably an issue for, for bureaucracy in general, but there's no doubt that police are measured more now than ever before, and so there are, there are comparisons that are able to be made, and so when that happens, um, there are political imperatives, political direction, around uh, what's to happen, where resources are to go. And I, I very much think that's an issue. And I think we, um, you know, there, there are, there is this, in the police in New Zealand and globally, there's a, a, a centralised, decentralised, centralised, decentralised type process. It's, it's ongoing and, and constant. And it's an incredible frustration to the, to the men and women in, in the police that I talk to, um, because nothing is, ever given a chance to, to develop and, and make a difference. And so um, that, along with the, the political flavour of the day and where the voters might, might have a particular interest at a particular time, is at times frustrating um, a consistent approach to, to law enforcement.
Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much um, for coming today. I genuinely hope you've enjoyed the session. If you've enjoyed it half as much as I have, everyone's had a blast. Um, and if, I, if you could just um, join me in thanking um, Steve and Tim for coming along today. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you.